2: ABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. The NEA National Heritage Fellowship is our nation's highest honor in the folk and traditional arts. Legendary soul singer and songwriter William Bell is among the distinguished nominees who received the award in 2021. Later in the program, we listen back to my interview with William Bell about receiving the award and what it was like to be among the earliest musicians signing with Stax Records in the 1960s. First... I'd like to read you a passage from Stacy's Extraordinary Words. Stacy loved words. Whenever Stacy learned a new word, it was like making a new friend. It seems the Stacy of this new children's story has much in common with the author, Stacy Abrams. She joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so
0: much. This is a delight and an exciting one. Oh, for
2: me as well. Now, you have written romance novels, a thriller. You've written about leadership and politics. Why did you decide
0: to write a children's book? I love children's literature. I grew up uh, the daughter of... A librarian and my mom's subspecialty, she's a research librarian by training and her subspecialty was children's literature. So I literally grew up surrounded by books and using literally the appropriate way, sleeping in the stacks (laughs) and reaching for books about and for children. And they've always stayed with me as some of the most complex writing that one can do. And when given the opportunity to write my own picture book, I jumped at it. Well, the story
2: feels so deeply personal. I felt like I was getting a window into your childhood. I was meeting little Stacy, who is adorable in these (laughs) illustrations, I must add. Not that you're not adorable now. (laughs) So is this book a sort of memoir?
0: Less memoir and more using autobiography to launch the story. I did indeed participate in spelling bees as a child, but there was no one child named Jake. Jake is a bit of a composite. And the narrative about how important words have always been to me is absolutely true. I I didn't have my own book of extraordinary words, but I did collect words and used to love to look at them. Oh, well, I have long
2: admired your work. And was excited when this story came out because I was a retired spelling bee champ in grade five. And there you go. My winning word was rhythm, which some of my classmates thought was unfair because I studied music and they just <laughs> thought of, she probably sees that on her music books. But it's a very Particular love for words that has a spelling. You had me laughing out loud when the teacher, Mrs. Blakely, tells little Stacy about a spelling bee, and little Stacy thinks that's an unusually intelligent insect. There you go. So tell us about the little Stacy in the story.
0: Stacy is in the second grade and she is having difficulty acclimating, but her teacher, her second grade teacher, Mrs. Blakesley, recognizes that she loves words and that those are friends, that this quiet child has turned to words to help her understand where she is. And by inviting her to participate in the spelling bee, she gives her a chance to use her superpower to present herself to the world. And Stacy thinks about how words have helped her, but also how she has not always lived up to the words that she believes in, that she hasn't done enough with her words to make a difference in the lives of her friends.
2: Mm. Words are palpable beings in this book. Stacy thought that words understood her better than people did. And in addition to being objects of her affection. How did words help Stacy?
0: For me, they were comfort, but they were also adventure. When my mother would say, go look it up, this was not a rhetorical statement. We had every reference book at our disposal. And thus I grew up looking up words, and I remember time and again getting caught up reading, not just the word I was looking up, but looking at the words around it and looking up the reference words, I enjoyed immersing myself in not just the stories that words could tell, but the words themselves as their own passport. And so for little Stacy in the book, it's one of those ways to understand yourself when you're a kid, when you don't have the language to describe what's happening but there are these little words that you hear or that you read about that suddenly explain what you're feeling, that Mm. you're not just a little scared, you're petrified, that you're grumpy or you're anxious. And it's not only the word itself, but how the word sounds in your mouth and how it feels when you say it that help you create more context for what's going on around you. Mm. It's sensual
2: the way you describe it. You're teaching words such as petrified. You mentioned onomatopoeia. It's another word that appears in the book. So you are increasing a child's vocabulary Mm -hmm. within the context of
0: this story. Was that intentional when you conceived the book? It was. There's a danger when you're writing children's literature, especially picture books that you want to meet the child where the child is, and you don't want to leave the child behind because your adult mind is moving too fast. But what I always appreciated as a kid and what my parents reinforced is that you don't leave someone behind, you bring them along with you. And so I use the story and the extraordinary illustrations by Kit Thomas to meet the child. And then I try to stretch their mind a little bit by adding a word they may not know So I use the the bird, the ptarmigan, because the P is silent, and it's a bird you normally wouldn't think of. But for a little kid, they suddenly have this new idea. They know what a bird is, and now they have a word and a construct that they can keep in their minds and impress their friends. (laughs) Well, let's talk more about the illustrations. They are
2: vibrant and whimsical and I was hoping you could tell us about working with the illustrator Kit Thomas.
0: I'm the first book that Kit has done for publication, and they did a masterful job of taking these concepts that I'd written about on paper and not just illustrating, but illuminating them. When I finally saw the first iteration, it was remarkable to me how these words on my page had jumped out at them and they had constructed this new world. But what was even more impressive to me was when I saw something that didn't reflect what I was thinking, I could send it back and say, this was not quite what I imagined. And I didn't have to provide too much explanation. The next iteration was exactly what I would have imagined if my imagination had been that vibrant.
2: They got you. I especially enjoyed the depiction of words at the spelling bee on the page. They look like they're
0: choreographed yes. dancing. That is Kit. I came up with a list of words and I knew I wanted this cascade of words that showed the excitement of a spelling bee and the difference in the types of words, the rhythm to use your, your championship word, uh, <laughs> the rhythm of a spelling bee on the page. And what Kit managed to do was, again, to, to, as you put it, to choreograph it and to give them such movement that they become characters themselves. Mm. If
2: you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright's speaking with political leader, activist, and author Stacy Abrams. Her first children's book is Stacy's Extraordinary Words. Little Stacy wishes she could use her clever words to help the kids at school who are being bullied. What does this story say about having the courage to speak up?
0: I wanted to do two things. One is acknowledge the instinct to help and to acknowledge that sometimes we don't do what we know we should. That Stacy made a mistake or simply didn't have the courage of her own convictions. And that's okay if you remedy it. If you stumble, it's okay as long as you try to succeed the second time. If you don't speak up on someone's behalf, yes, you should acknowledge it. But the next time you have a chance, you should do it. And I wanted Stacey and and all of the little readers to know that it's okay if you don't do everything you should, because you have a chance to do it the next time. And yet you
2: confess that writing this story tapped into something you love most, reading and writing and words, and fear of failing. I think It's very important to impart to kids that that's okay. And it seems your parents did that.
0: Absolutely. My first spelling bee, much as uh, my character, we misspelled different words, but my first public failure was to misspell the word chocolate. I did not realize it had a second O. I'd never noticed it. I knew there was no K, but the second O eluded me. And I remember the, the sense of failure. What was so important to me in the book is that when Stacy's mother says, there's always next year, there's another spelling bee, to think about the fact that you don't have to wait for another cinematic moment for success, that your chance to be better is tomorrow and that failure isn't permanent. It is an opportunity to learn. It's going to be painful. It can be humiliating, especially if it happens on a national stage but that it is also an invitation to try again. And for younger kids being told early that yes, success and failure are two very distinct parts in our lives, but neither are guarantees. Mm. And that achieving one or not achieving the other is not a comment on who you are. It's just a chance for you to try again. That to me was something that my parents very much instilled in us as we struggled growing up, but it was also how they lived their lives, that our failure to be all of the things we read about did not mean that we couldn't get there one day. It was just gonna require a new type of effort and perseverance and resilience. Hmm. Great
2: words, by the way. I think one of those or both are in the book. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> in the author's note, we learned that there was a real life Mrs. Blakely, the second grade teacher. Would you talk about her impact on you at the time you moved into her class?
0: If you remember being a first grader, it's your opening invitation to being in the big kids school. You come out of kindergarten, you're in, in first grade, and I went to school before kindergarten was a part of the elementary school. So I was that was my first time in the big Big kid school. I'd only been there for a few weeks, maybe a month, when I was skipped to the next grade. But it was after I'd found my friends, after I'd gotten used to my teacher, after I'd figured out the, the way and the cadence of my days, and suddenly I'm being taken out of that space and put into a new one with unfamiliar children and an unfamiliar classroom. And Miss Blakesley saw me and understood that I was quiet and awkward and unsure of myself and she gave me permission during recess to read instead of going outside because recess we remember it fondly but recess is it's war you're, you're trying to find kids to play i don't with. remember yeah. it fondly. i would but rather i believed in a great indoor yes space. exactly and, and so i didn't know these kids and i didn't want to i didn't know their games but i knew books and i knew that books were always gonna be kind to me. And so she let me read. And that I think allowed me to acclimate at my own pace. And then when she put me in the spelling bee, it was also a recognition that what had moved me into this new space wasn't a flaw. It was a good thing. My, my love of language, my ability to spell had been something I was teased for. And this was a celebration. It was a celebration of being able to think and too often we we may idolize it, but we don't always celebrate and encourage it in ways that are accessible to kids. And spelling bees are one of those ways. And th- that was it for me. I hope
2: that experience was not so traumatic as to turn you off from chocolate.
0: It did not. And I will Good. say Mrs. Blakesley was the epitome of what you want a second grade teacher to be. She was thoughtful and kind. And when I misspelled chocolate, she never made me spell it on the test again, but I never misspelled the word ever in life. And now I can do it in French without the E, but always with the O. <laughs> they do make very good chocolate. exactly. Chocolat. exactly. Oui. The
2: dedication is beautiful. Would you tell us more about it or read it for our listeners?
0: Certainly. The dedication is to my family. I dedicate all of my my books. So to my first storytellers, mom and dad, to my bibliophile siblings all, and to our newest generation of readers, Jordan, Faith, Cameron, Ryan, Aaron, and Devon. Those are my nieces and nephews. The important piece for me though is to start it with my parents. They are the ones who encouraged me to read and who nurtured not just a love of stories, but a love of words. My mother as a librarian and in sharp contrast, my father who was undiagnosed as dyslexic until he was in his thirties, but who still loved stories so much that he would tell us these vibrant and vivid stories and would encourage us to read something he couldn't do very well himself, but he understood how transformative it could be for us. And between the two of them, they created a family that reads, Everything. So my five brothers and sisters and I, to this day, we have a family book club that we use to share books and to swap stories and to just stay together. What book are you currently reading? We are reading Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse.
2: Oh, wow. I read that you're an omnivore when it comes to pleasure reading. Yes. And I'd like to read this quote I approach reading as I do my public service, trying to create space for forgiveness and grace, while never letting go of my own moral code. Do you think, in these divisive times, that people should be reading more about what people unlike them are writing?
0: Absolutely. I just yesterday was reading a critique of me, but the author, they referenced the author's other works and I I bought the book because I want to read about this other way of thinking. My thought processes, my approach should always be informed by my value system, but it should also always be informed by an attempt to understand someone not like myself. When we lean on our own understanding, it becomes calcified, but it also makes service impossible. How can you serve someone you don't respect and don't understand? I may not agree, but I need to understand where we have shared experiences that suddenly diverge and how we want those experiences to be replicated or how we want those values to be lived. During my tenure as a writer and as a public servant, I've tried very hard To always not only engage those who don't agree with me, but to go out of my way to be of service. Because actions not only speak louder sometimes than words, although I think words do a pretty good job of it, but actions can reinforce the words we say. It is not sufficient to say, I believe in all of our people if you're not going to operate in that way. And for me, it's not a either or, it is a both and. My words have to reflect my values and my actions have to reflect my words.
2: I must say that by the end of this story, it's impossible not to love little Stacy. And I must thank you for showing us that I'm quoting here. Failure is never more than an invitation to try again. And Stacy Abrams thank you so much for using your words to
0: do so much good well thank you i tried to accept the invitation each and every time it's offered <laughs> this has just been a joy lois writes as this has been a dream come true i've listened to your voice for so many years and to have a book that has made me worthy of city lights is just an honor georgia's own Stacey abrams her new
2: children's book, Stacy's Extraordinary Words, is available now. More information can be found on our website, wabeorg citylights. In a moment, the legendary soul singer and songwriter William Bell. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Loris It's Great to have you along. The NEA National Heritage Fellowship is our nation's highest honor in the folk and traditional arts. It recognizes the recipient's artistic excellence and supports their continuing contributions to our nation's traditional arts heritage. Legendary soul singer and songwriter, William Bell, is among the distinguished nominees who received the award in 2021. Back in March, on the day Bell was to receive the award, he joined me via Zoom and began talking about what it was like to be among the earliest musicians signing on with Stax Records in the 1960s.
1: I would describe it as a family affair because the owners, L. Axton and Jim Stewart, just let a lot of neighborhood kids inside the building. And we learned a craft. We honed our craft. They gave us a chance to chase our dreams and uh, accomplish a lot of things in life and make a living at it. Hmm.
2: Who were some of the other influential artists that signed on in the early days?
1: Well, of course, you had Rufus and Carla Thomas. You had Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, Eddie Floyd, Johnny Taylor, the Staple Singers, and that's just to name a few.
2: We're talking basically who's who, and uh, y'all developed what was known as the Memphis Sound.
1: The Memphis Sound, yeah. It was the uh, original Southern Soul thing, and it turned into worldwide, uh, worldly, the Memphis
2: Sound. How would you characterize Memphis Sound versus... Motown sound? What do you think distinguished it?
1: I think it was a combination of everything that we had been exposed to on the radio, because we had uh, a couple of radio stations, one black and one white one that all of the people would listen to. But on those two stations, we heard uh, not only r rhythm and blues, Uh, We heard gospel, we heard jazz, we heard rockabilly at the time, which is pop now. (laughs) And uh, then we heard country. So we heard everything on one
2: station. So we had uh, our influences were varied. Yeah, and you could experience and either draw from these influences or add to them in your case, which you certainly did, radio is so formatted now that listeners don't have that option.
1: There is a lot of merging of the genres of music now, though. But back then, uh, in the studio, we had both, before it was fashionable, black and white recording and creating together and that was the sound and the the actual musicians that played on say 90% of those records and recordings uh, were like Booker T and the MGs and then we had two blacks Al Jackson and Booker, Al played drums, Booker played organ and keys and then you had Steve Cropper and Doug Dunn who uh, Steve Cropper of course is well known with his guitar work and Doug Dunn with his bass
2: work. Yeah technology was very different
1: it was non existent in those days everything that we created it was almost like a trial and error you had you wanted to create our to give you an example our echo chamber was a mic hung between the draperies and the wall the, the concrete wall at at the old theater building so we were just creative and innovative back in those days, and we'd make different sounds, And uh, but they have lasted and withstood the test of time.
2: Yeah. What sort of discipline or self-discipline was required of you that younger generations didn't even have to consider during recordings?
1: Self-discipline was ultimate. I mean, because we only had starting out two tracks to record to. <laughs> so you had the band on one track and you had the vocalists on the other track. So you had to make sure you would distance it that at a certain point for the lead vocals in the back of voices. And then you had to know your craft. You had to be right on point with singing or playing because, you could go through a, an entire recording song and, and if a horn squeaked or somebody's voice cracked or something like that, you had to start all over again. And so, of course, everybody looked at, <laughs> at you if something
2: happened on your end. So it instilled that discipline in us. Wow. You have quite the ensemble performing with you at each concert or festival, a twelve-piece band. Why do you like working with such a large ensemble?
1: Oh, th- this group—they uh, are like uh, my surrogate family here with me. Uh, it's like they've been with me about twenty-five years. Now there are a couple of new ones in the group uh, that we, but they've been with me three or four years now. So. But the core group has been with me for a long time. So we are a family. We've been performing all over the world together. So uh, we are adept at making whatever changes we have to make to get our sound across. It is uh, the authentic old school Memphis Southern soul sound because we you have to have all of the horns and the guitars and the the drums and all of the live musicians in order to create that sound and that's what I kind of insist on I thought our love would last forever we would raise a family but the cards were dealt against us it was never meant to be when love walks out and leaves you, loneliness steps in. You may take a couple of rounds, but the house always wins. Whoa,
2: yeah. Oh, I love it. Oh, those horns make such a difference.
1: Oh yes, <laughs> the energy that it, it puts out with having live musicians
2: on stage is just unreal. Oh, and how we miss that in these pandemic days, especially. I know it.
1: That's been quite a test for us, but we have resigned ourselves to just be creative now. So we, I have a studio, so we do a lot of work in the studio where we can social distance and all of that, and. Uh, So we've been doing a lot of things there and and to uh, perform
2: them like uh, virtually. Yeah. Well, as part of the virtual presentation for the NEH Awards, viewers will be able to hear some of your music. Yes. Can you tell us which songs will be presented
1: well, I did one of the old ones, which is uh, the first one that I recorded with Stacks with You Don't Miss Your Water. I kept
3: you crying. Sad and
1: blue. I was a playboy. I wouldn't be true. But when you left me and said, I miss my water, my well and dry. And then I did one of the ones from my Grammy winning last CD. Which is this is where I live. La, da, la, 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 la Yeah I was born in Memphis in a different world. Now that time has come and gone. I was just a little boy when I heard Sam Cook singing, A change is gonna come. Touch my soul. Let me know There's a promise of a brand new day Then I left my home Started out on my own joy to uh, be able to do those couple of songs and and of course being back on Stacks after 40 years (laughs) more than that actually it's like 60 years but I was with them for about 14 years as an artist and writer and producer then uh, I started my own thing after they of course went under as far as filing bankruptcy and all of that and then to go back after they've been resurrected by concord stacks now and to sign on again and to win a grammy for them and uh, it was just rewarding i mean it was just it's unreal to say how i felt and how they felt oh.
2: <laughs> if you are just joining us This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and we're listening back to my interview with the legendary soul singer and songwriter William Bell, recorded via Zoom in March of this year, coming full circle. Yes, absolutely. Would you talk about your mentorship work with young musicians and the Stax Music Academy?
1: Oh, yes. About 20 years ago, we decided that we wanted to buy back that lot that stacks had stood on and build that building back and start a, a school for the kids that they could learn the craft and chase their dreams also. So we did that with a few of the, I think, Isaac Hayes, uh, Deanie Parker, David Porter, myself, and Rufus Thomas were the First ones that sat down to uh, talk about doing that, and we did concerts and things to raise funds. We finally were able to uh, acquire the lot that Stax stood on at the corner of Macklemore. There, we uh, found the original blueprints of the building, and we built it back to spec. And we opened back up and started the Stax Music Academy and. It's just wonderful how those kids have grown and blossomed and gone on to become successful musicians and artists in their own right. And that, I'm just like a proud grandfather because I sit back and smile every time I see one of the kids achieving something. But we have had 100% graduating uh, classes for about seven years. And Berkeley, the School of Berkeley Music, has given full scholarships to, I, I think, maybe 10 or 12 of our kids already. So, uh, and we work closely with Berkeley also.
2: Mm, really worthwhile work. I know you've lived in Atlanta for several years and you call Georgia your adopted home. <laughs> How do you think this state has grown musically? In comparison to Memphis, which has a much older tradition, I think
1: Georgia has grown tremendously in both the, the industries, music and movies. But when I first moved here in '74, there weren't many musicians here. I think uh, it was Hamilton Bohannon, and then I moved here, and of course James had the Future Shark show here here on Turner, but he lived in uh, Augusta. So there weren't many musicians here. They, they have a lot of musicians out of uh, Atlanta that have gone on successfully, like Gladys and different people and Hank Ballard and the Midnighters and I can go on and on, but they always had to uh, go someplace else to attain that success. And, and after I came here, I was here for a couple of years and uh, finally settled in after I, I loved Atlanta when I first were coming here during concerts and I fell in love with it. It was similar to Memphis, but only more a little bit more progressive than Memphis and had more things with the arts community. And so I moved here for that purpose and built a home and built a studio and production company here. But I was welcomed in with open arms and, uh, after the second year, I think I was here. Clarence Carter moved here. So now with Leface and all of them and Dallas Austin and all of the guys that started the hip-hop thing, uh, it it is just wonderful to see how Atlanta has grown musically. Uh, I see the same thing that happened with Memphis happening in Atlanta
2: now. Really exciting. This NEH Award honors our nation's traditional arts heritage, I was hoping you could talk about the elements of soul music and how soul is ingrained into our American heritage.
1: Actually, soul music developed through the churches. During uh, slavery time and then after slavery, the Blacks, People would always, after working in the fields and everything, they would sit around the campfires and everything in their little communities and, and sing songs. And that developed into Sunday mornings going to church. And then from that, of course, the same people that were working in the field, they liked to dance and party. So a couple of the blues singers like the Robert Johnsons and the, the older musicians that started you know the, the muddy waters and the howling whoops and the, all of those guys. They started working in these what they call um, <laughs> we call them now juke joints. <laughs> they were houses more or less that they turned into some type of a, a, a club that people would come to on the weekends after working hard in the fields and. Then uh, they would go there Saturdays and then they go to church on Sundays. So they got a full dose of blues and and gospel. So when we we started this soul thing, most of the people that were in soul music, including Sam Cooke that started this soul craze, he came out of church and he sang with the Soul Stirrers for years and then went on to do secular music. After Sam, then uh, other artists realized that They could make a better living singing secular music, so we joined in. It just became popular with the people because they got mainly the same feeling because we were gospel singers singing in the church choir and singing solo in church, and some of us were preachers like Solomon Burke. (laughs) So we were the same people, but we were doing music that talked about life and talked about the struggles of life and people just readily identified with it. So soul music blossomed and it became what it is today. But you have the same musicians that play in church played in the uh, recording studios to create it.
2: It's all from the
1: soul. It's all from the soul. And and they say uh, in our community that You can never find a soul singer that will sing the same song identically the same way because it's all how you're feeling that story you're trying to tell at any given time. That's very true. We sing according to how we're feeling at the moment. It's like
2: What is your hope for future generations carrying on the tradition of soul? I think it's very,
1: very uplifting that uh, there are a lot of talented uh, youngsters out there with great musical talents and and great voices that are coming along. We see them in working with them. I've had some on the road, some of the Stax kids on the road, so they can get an idea of working and performing before a live crowd. I took them to the Smithsonian. I took them to uh, Europe with me, and I took them to actually an AARP award at Disney World.
2: Oh, my. So,
1: (laughs) So they've seen the whole gamut of it, and they perform themselves, and it's very good for them to get that experience. But I think soul music is alive and well in the youngsters and uh, there are a lot of of them that's coming along and they put a different little spin on it and um, because this is their generation just like we put a spin on bb king and Bobby bland's generation they were the generation before me so when we came along we were doing the same music but according to what you're experiencing in your generation you add that to it but when you start performing it you find out that people are people and we all all have the same wishes desires frustrations and all of that and no matter where you appear in the world some some of the audiences might not uh, speak fluent English or something but they feel the impact of soul music because of the feeling they get from the delivery of it, it's the same people all over the world. And now, of course, with technology, we, it's world music.
2: Ah, yes. Interesting. Finally, I wondered what it means to you to be honored as one of the National Heritage Fellows.
1: It is just, like I said, it's a wonderful feeling. Uh, I'm elated over it, but I'm humbled because you just never know as an artist if anyone's listening, (laughs) you know, or watching what what you're doing. And there's so many trial and error and pitfalls in this business. So you wonder sometimes if if you're making a dent dent in it. But this is an affirmation that, People were listening, people were paying attention and that I was able to develop and bring something to the table for the generations that will last. And uh, that's a that's that's a good feeling because the music will last longer than (laughs) the, the, the live bodies.
2: William Bell, I don't think you have to worry about anyone listening history has spoken people have been listening to you for decades and it's just a joy to see you receive this recognition and honor during your lifetime congratulations thank you so much the legendary soul artist william bell from our interview in march of this year coming up the next segment in our series, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear from Atlanta artists in their own words. Today, featuring puppet maker and prop fabricator Sam Carter. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words.
3: Hi, my name is Sam Carter, and I am a professional art goon for hire. I'm a fabricator of puppets, props, set pieces, and a whole lot more for the film and television industry here in Atlanta. I'm also the creator of a kid-centered maker's show called Make It Weird. I started drawing at a really young age, and I was lucky enough to have parents who were supportive of that, even if they didn't really Understand it. Uh, they weren't artists themselves, but they they were always uh, very encouraging to me. And uh, and then in college, I, I got into uh, stop motion animation and, and puppetry, which uh, just sort of gave me the the basics to get into to fabrication. And from there, I you know picked up mold making and woodworking and and you know so on and so forth. I would say that I am motivated by a deep-seated sense of impending doom uh, coupled with a fear of my own insignificance in the universe. Um, in a lot of ways, my, my art is like a compulsive behavior, like a, like a creative nervous tick to, uh, to tamp down uh, a, a, a cosmic dread that I'm, I'm usually grappling with. I call Atlanta my home because I'm I'm from Georgia. My family's uh, from Georgia and still still lives here, and uh, and I'm able to earn a good living uh, through through my creative works here. You know, I've been very fortunate to to be able to provide a good life for myself and my family in this city, and it, it's something that I'm uh, I don't take for granted. I'm very grateful for that. So I'm, I'm only familiar with a few galleries in town because a lot of the kind of work that I do doesn't, uh, doesn't go to galleries. It, it goes up on the big screen. Um, but I, I'd say one of the things that I really love about Atlanta is that you don't necessarily have to go to, to a gallery or even go very far to see amazing art. You know, I, Some of my favorite artists, uh, guys like Our Land and uh, Black Cat Tips, uh you know their their works plastered on walls all over the city you can't throw a rock without hitting an arland mural so um so that you know it's a very accessible uh, art scene which is which is great if people want to see some of my work out in public uh they they can they can either drive all the way up to J, georgia to a field next to the, uh, Carter K pizza company on highway 92, uh, where they can find a 12 foot tall statue of, uh, of a squid Billy that I made with, uh, Russ Vick and Chris Brown for adult swim. Uh, or, you know, if you don't want to make that trek all the way up to North Georgia, you can follow me on Instagram. At Get Behind the Mule, and Mule is misspelled M U E L, as in Samuel, because that's me.
2: Puppet maker and prop fabricator Sam Carter in our series Speaking of the Arts. You can learn more about Sam's work, including his YouTube show Make It Weird, on our website wabe.org slash city lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll revisit my conversation with producer and director Shayla Harris about the documentary The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. The series will have an encore broadcast on our television station, ATLPBA, next week, beginning Monday, January 3rd. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Life. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves, Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlantis Choice for NPR.